1999, I won't tell you how old I was, just got into the double digits. Uh, my family and I, we were in Washington, D.C., uh, and at this time, there was this huge youth conference that happened every four years in Washington, D.C., and as typical, when a ton of tourists descend into a major city, uh, there's a lot of street vendors that come that are ser- selling various paraphernalia, watches, sunglasses, jewelry, whatever it might be. And I distinctly remember throughout this week uh, walking around and everyone had on a pair of Oakleys. And sure enough, there were many vendors who just had their stacks and stacks of Oakleys. And everyone, I think, eventually realized these are not real Oakleys, (laughs) but they looked like real Oakleys. And they were like $5 or $10, depending on how good you were at haggling for the price. And they would walk around, and I'm sure there were other differences than like real Oakleys, but the only difference that that I could tell was right here on like the bridge of the glasses, where it says Oakley, it said Oakey, (laughs) O-A-K-E-Y, and that's how you could tell the difference between real ones and fake ones. And there was this sense of like, we didn't really care that we were like being deceived. It looked like the real thing. We didn't really care that it wasn't the real thing. It was cheap. We could afford it. And this like small little deception was something that didn't necessarily really bother us, even though it wasn't actually the real thing. And that's not just in sunglasses. There's a, there's a lot of things that happen like this. I was reading this week uh, about this famous piece of art. Uh, there's a fake paint, a fake copy of the Mona Lisa painting that for years and years, it's gone back and forth to different auctions. And it, and it began in the early 1900s thinking that this one that was fake was actually the real one that got stolen. And so the one that is in the Louvre is the one that's actually fake. And the people who study art, whatever their names are, they could tell very little difference between the real Mona Lisa and then this one that was fake. This summer, this fake Mona Lisa sold for $3.4 million, which is an insane amount of money for something that you likely know is fake. Maybe there's that like small 5% in your head of like, this is the real one and the fake ones in the Louvre. But again, they're comfortable knowing that this is not fully the real thing. So whether it's cheap sunglasses or expensive counterfeit art, we can be easily deceived. Sometimes we want that, and sometimes we unknowingly find ourselves in that place. Malcolm Gladwell has a new book called Talking to Strangers, and he explores a lot of this idea of why humans can be easily deceived. And there's many, many stories throughout the book that he's looking at what it is like within our relationships and how humans have what this one guy calls a default to truth. His name's Tim Levine. He's a psychologist, and he's spent years and years studying people, studying um, why people are default to this truth. We're social and relational creatures, and, and much of his work has been around those who are in some kind of like law enforcement. He's done police officers or FBI or CIA to see if they are actually better at detecting lies than the average human. And while they are actually better, they're not that much better. Because humans, we have this default to truth. We want to assume that the person who's talking to us is is telling us the truth. 
And now this isn't something that's just been happening since 1999 or before that. I would contend that this is something that's happened since the beginning of time. One of the stories that we reference a lot because it's incredibly important is the fall of humanity. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden and and the serpent comes to him and and the serpent doesn't come in this grandiose fashion or with anything spectacular, but rather the serpent comes with this idea that is deceptive. He says, did God really say to you these things? Did God really say that if you eat of this fruit, you will die, which is a slight twist on what God did actually say. There's some truth in what the serpent is saying, but he's planting this deceptive idea that is a lie. And we know how that story continues. And Exodus 6, I think, is actually something else along this narrative. From the garden to Exodus 7 to where we are now. The first thing that we see in Exodus 7 is this character of Pharaoh. And throughout the book of Exodus, we've seen different ones. They actually never give you the the name of Pharaoh. It's just a title. And we see different ones, and and there's a reason, I think, for that. Pharaoh is not just a a king in Exodus, but rather Pharaoh is is a royal title. And And it's a sequence that's happening for Egyptian kings throughout many generations. And so the question then becomes, why is the writer doing this? Or why is the author giving names to people like Moses and Aaron or the midwives? But why is he not giving a name to this person of Pharaoh? Pharaoh then becomes what is an archetype or a pattern for our human evil and our rebellion. Think of the fall and what's happening in Genesis 3. What we now have in Exodus 7, this kind of culminates in the person of Pharaoh. This is what Tim Mackey says about this happening. The king or sequence of kings is the epitome of human evil. He embodies the strange and tragic turn the human heart can take when one person or society places their own values and well-being above another person or society. Pharaoh is what happens when an entire nation redefines good and evil apart from God's wisdom. You get an Egypt building its wealth and security on the backs of an abused, oppressed, and enslaved Israel. As the story develops, Pharaoh even places his own reputation and pride above the well-being of his own people. And so what we have here is, is Pharaoh represents this type or this pattern of evil. Someone who is so disconnected from the the concern and the care of others that he's willing to bring on abuse and oppression and enslave Israel. And I believe much of why this is happening is a deception and and a delusion that Pharaoh has about himself and who he is. One of the things that often happens when we get into this text that we notice, and I'll show you in a moment, other verses of what's happening is, how is Pharaoh being used in this story? There's times where you see that it says God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. And there's other times when it says, see that Pharaoh has hardened his own heart. Is Pharaoh just a tool that God is using throughout this, like a puppet of sorts? Or is Pharaoh also someone who is complicit and responsible for what's happening? These are all the different references that we get in the next several chapters of of what it looks like. You see Pharaoh's heart became hard, or you see Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then we see places where God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
I think what's happening here is there's a, a, a play between Pharaoh and what is happening around him. Certainly he is having his own heart hardened, but this is not something that God is totally detached from as well. Much of what is happening throughout the book of Exodus and, and specifically in these scenes as well is God is showing that he is truly Lord and sovereign over all. Despite Pharaoh's claims to be the most powerful person in the world or the most powerful God-like in the universe, God is taking those claims and he's using them and he is twisting them. And, and every kind of evil that Pharaoh has brought out, God is slowly bringing those out for good and for Israel's ultimate exodus. Now, something interesting happens in the end of this chapter where we see um, the, the staffs turning into snakes. I'll pull it up again so that we can read it and see what it says. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, as he would not listen to them, just as the Lord has said. See, there's this subtle deception that's happening here within this story. Both the Egyptian magicians and Moses and Aaron can produce the same thing of a staff turning into a serpent. And in a lot of ways, I think Pharaoh wants to believe that it's the same thing. And but we know as the reader that it's not the same thing. While it might look the same on the surface, there are two different people and mechanisms behind them. And so it's this subtle deception. It, it looks like it is real, but it's not actually real. And I suspect Pharaoh had questions of, did Moses and Aaron really make a snake out of their staff? Well, if they can do that, then why can't we do that as well? What appears like on the surface is that their staff turned into snakes, but there's obviously a very different person in power behind this. But Pharaoh, as the most powerful person in the world, he wanted to believe his magicians. He wanted to believe that he was in charge and everything that Moses and Aaron and their God could do, he could do as well. But he's deluding himself. He's being deceived by someone greater than himself. The same serpent that is in the garden is still at work here and at work in our world. See, what happening, what's happened is Pharaoh is resistant to believe the things of God because he thinks he is able to produce those things himself. One of the things that I, I love about narratives is narratives often invite you into the story. You can think about what person you might be in this story and you can imagine yourself in there and you can get into the story itself. And where I find myself in this story is not a good place. I actually find myself in the seat of Pharaoh. I can be very cynical. My heart can be hard. And I, and I can see the things that are happening around me. And I can think, did God really do that? Was that really God doing that? Or was that just a coincidence? Or was that fate? Whatever that might be. And I can see something that is very much real and is very much of God, but I can ask those questions of, was that really God? Or I can do it on a, on a more personal day-to-day -day basis. 
where I can think that, that the things of God I can do on my own and I don't actually need God for those things. I can be a good husband and parent and good pastor and good neighbor and I actually don't need God for those things. There might be that small 5% of like, okay, God, I can, I can give you this. This is what I need for you. But this 95%, I think this is truth, and this is who I can be. And I can be very cynical, and my heart can be hard. And the hardness of my heart, I think similar to the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, is the thing that often keeps us from seeing where God is at work around us in our relationships, in our family, in our neighborhood, and in our city. Maybe you have a similar hard time in believing God. Maybe this is part of the story where we see what's happening and we think, well, this isn't real or this is a story. This isn't actually how it happened. The intentionality of the story of of God coming and using people like Moses and Aaron to bring down an oppressive empire. One of the things that happens at the end, I'll go back and look at it, is this maybe is this line right here where it says, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. This I think is a, a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. The next time that we see this is when they're crossing the Red Sea and it says the Red Sea swallowed up Pharaoh and his army. This swallowing of up, we also see when it talks about Jesus swallowing up death. And see, the hardness of of Pharaoh's heart and the hardness of my heart, it's it's something that can't thwart the work that God is doing when he brings about good out of evil, even though it's really hard for me to see that and to recognize that. And so the thing I love about this story is the way that God is working, the way that Moses and Aaron are in this story. But honestly, I I kind of love Pharaoh and his response because I think that's the response I would have. When I sit in the seat of power, I can very easily look out and try to explain things away and take God out of the picture. But God is very much at work. He's combating the false religion and the false ideologies of Egypt and Pharaoh. And we'll see that played out over the next couple weeks when we look at the plagues and how that happens. And I think God is still at work combating lies and false ideologies that are playing out in our world, but are also playing out here in our very own thoughts and hearts and lives. But that's not the end. It gets swallowed up. Egypt becomes swallowed up. Our death and sin is swallowed up in Jesus. And one of the reasons we do this meal every week is is to remind ourselves and to remember that even though there is a lot of evil in the world and at times it feels like it's overwhelming and it can't be resolved and it can't be fixed, we do know that ultimately it's swallowed up, that God is somehow, some way working through this evil to bring about his will and his purpose in the world.